Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's 9 a.m. in California uh, on Thursday, March 26th. Uh, And there are three numbers on everyone's mind this morning. There are three million Americans seeking unemployment benefits as a consequence of the coronavirus crisis. Congress is inching its way towards its $2 trillion aid bill on the crisis. And while all this is going on, the Dow Jones average, the the American stock market, is up over 5% as we speak. Uh, Those three numbers don't, in my mind at least, add up. And I've got a guy on today's show who I think is I don't know if he's good at maths, but he's very good at analyzing numbers, the contradictory numbers of contemporary American capitalism. Douglas Rushkoff is a a, a writer, commentator, critic, I think, of American capitalism, or at least of contemporary American capitalism. Doug, uh, welcome. How do those numbers add up in your mind? Three million unemployed, two trillion dollar aid package and the Dow up 5%. Well, I mean, it all makes sense to me. I mean, not good sense, but but sense. I mean, what's happening is, I mean, most simply, the government's printing additional money. You know, it's not borrowing the money from itself or doing, it's just going to print $2 trillion and spill it out as far and wide as it can. But then what will people do? do with that money. I mean, they're going to end up spending it at Amazon on General Foods, you know? (laughs) Oh, it's going to go back up into the same places. So once there's more money in the system and, and cash or the dollar is really no longer the thing that's in short supply, what will be in short supply? Well, what will be in short supply are the securities to invest in. It's a, you know, General Electric and and Amazon and Google are not going to be issuing more shares to solve the current problem. If anything, they're buying back their own shares. So all this money will need somewhere to go once it trickles back up into the uh, you know, the coffers of the wealthy. And what are they going to do with it is put it in shares. So when more money is printed, especially money that we know is going to go um, is going to move, you know, up the system back to the same people who have most of the money. Uh, we know that then their securities will uh, have to go up in value. So, is, are you saying it's a scam? It's not a scam. I mean, it's not a scam now, but it's the way to keep the economy going, and the economy is already a scam. You know, what it's doing is exposing the underlying inequality, you know, in the sort of the core operating system of a modern 
economy. You know, this is a it's a 500 year old Ponzi scheme, a kind of a pump and dump that's been working. And it really worked really right up uh, or worked for, for the wealthy or even for the middle class right up until the digital age when uh, when investors started to demand, you know, exponential growth instead of just geometric growth. And the real economy was just unable to support, you know, growth of that magnitude. But that's what we're looking at, you know. When when Donald Trump comes out and says, "Look, we've got to get people back to work on Monday. We're not going to wait weeks or another month, and we're not going to sacrifice our economy on the altar of human lives." You know that, yeah. If a few hundred thousand or a few million of us have to die, um, then then so be it, because the American way is is at stake, <laughs> and that's. That's what they're looking at. It's not a matter of getting people back to work so they can get salaries. It's a matter of, uh, of, of getting people back to work so that the economy can keep growing, and so, uh, or at least long term, keep growing, and the the share prices can go up. You know, that's been the deal uh, since the beginning. Okay, so let's close our eyes for a moment and imagine that Doug Rushkoff suddenly seizes control of the U.S. government and of the U.S. Treasury. How would you? confront this crisis differently? Well, I wouldn't do it from the top down. I would do it from the bottom up. You know, what What this crisis is helping us see is the, the fallacy of centralized control and global supply chains and spreadsheet management and offshoring and uh, kind of robbing ourselves of basic Competence. You know, I don't mean to sound um, too much like like Trump or even uh, Dick Gephardt, if people remember him. But there's a tremendous value to or to maintaining certain competencies locally, whether it's growing food or uh, making power or education. I mean, the things that you can do in a distributed fashion, which is what the internet was supposed to be able to enable, um, really does help create uh, resilience. So for instance, if we knew how to manufacture uh, respirators or ventilators in America, uh, if we did that in a distributed way, it may look inefficient to corporations that want to extract as much money as possible from these manufacturing processes. But it's actually more efficient when you understand the economy as a, a circular phenomenon, as one where people are are where you're optimizing your economic activity for the exchange of goods and services, for the velocity of transactions between people rather than the extraction of value from people. So the economy that we built, really that we started in the late Middle Ages as a way of staving off the rise of the middle class, that the peasants were becoming too wealthy, we created central currency, we created chartered monopolies, which really shut people out of creating and exchanging value. It forced them to borrow money from central treasuries at interest and pay it back at interest. And this economy that has to grow and becomes increasingly um, centralized and monopolized by a few, you know, by letting go of some of that control, some of that, that really regulation is what it is. Um, it's just regulation in favor of, of the largest players and allowing municipalities and local people to start um, entering into industry competitively, 
you know, rather than just subsidizing these companies and letting them externalize their pain and suffering and pollution and extraction on the rest of us, we end up with a more resilient economy. So what I would do is try to remove the regulations that prevent local businesses from from, uh, succeeding and uh, try to enable them, to empower them to develop alternative currency and exchange systems. Uh, It's a slow, you know, it's a slow build and it doesn't tend to happen unless it has to. But So so what you're saying then is that the the problem with early 21st century capitalism is regulation. It needs to be deregulated. Is that, is that your argument? In certain ways, yes. Because, I mean, but what we call deregulation now is usually just alternative regulations or stealth regulations. But a genuine free market would be interesting. You know, most corporations couldn't compete in a true free market. You know, they they have they they uh, they borrow money cheaper than we do. They uh, uh, they have all sorts of uh, uh, conditions they can create that make it much much harder. Um, you know, even you look at something as simple as farming. It's very very hard for a local family farm to compete against big agriculture under the current agricultural regulations. And and you would argue the same about the digital economy. You would argue the same about what small e-commerce stores versus Amazon or, or small algorithmic companies versus Facebook or Google. Yeah, I mean, sure, sure. I mean, because yeah, these companies have been given a, a certain kind of a free ride. I mean, it would be very hard for someone to come in and compete against uh, Uber, say. And the only place where they're doing it at all successfully is, you know, in Austin, where there's an alternative uh, ride-hailing company. And and people, local people understand how this is better for their friends, that this is better for their town uh, to, to use that. But it's it's very hard to compete when we're thinking about things on a national scale. It's hard. But I think part of what this virus is helping people see is we care about our local reality and the local reality matters that when we do politics as one giant nationally branded kind of American idol reality show, um, we end up with much poorer results than when uh, our our local governments really have have more control. And we turn to the central government for big problems like pandemics you know that's when that's when the uh, uh, central government can help but, but but doesn't this crisis show the value of, of a central government being able to respond consistently to a crisis it does it does it shows that at the same time though that it shows um, how weakened we are made when we are so dependent on global corporate supply chains for our basic goods and services. But how does that how does that work, Doug? If you're in charge, do you do you regulate against global supply chains? What happens if you're building a smartphone? Do you have to do all your manufacturing locally? Oh, there are a few devices. There's a few things that it's really good to have a global supply chain, like an automobile, like a smartphone. Um, you know, th- yeah. But your do, do we need to be like right now? We fish shrimp out of the Gulf of Mexico. We ship it from there to Thailand, Vietnam, <laughs> and China, where they get deshelled. Then they're shipped back to the United States, where we use them in restaurants. Now, that's why. <laughs> why is that happening? You know, why are the same 
crops being, you know, uh, uh, there's agriculture from Bolivia that's then shipped to China and the U.S. And the very same vegetables are grown in the U.S. and China and shipped to Bolivia. What's that? Um, you know, so it's those sorts of those sorts of uh, um, sort of global supply chain shenanigans that really only favor uh, 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 the, the people who are doing arbitrage on on agriculture and not really helping us live more efficiently at all. The, the, the sh- shenanigans that you describe can they also be used to explain the lightning growth of the virus itself? You know, I mean, sure. I mean, uh, on a certain level, I mean, China tried to scale up. I mean, China is going through now, interestingly enough, what Europe went through right after the late Middle Ages. You know, the the Europe in the in the late Middle Ages was doing really well. They had gotten very profitable. They had so much extra money in towns that they were building cathedrals as their investment in the future. And that was a problem for the aristocracy, which is why, as I was talking about before, they made local currency illegal. They made doing business illegal. They forced you to work for one of the king's chartered monopolies. They forced you to borrow money from a central treasury. If you used local money, you were killed. And what followed shortly after was the plague, because everybody had to move to the city and work in these disgusting uh, proto factories. I mean, they weren't factories like we'd understand them, but they were, you know, uh, uh, sweatshops without machinery. Um, and people got the plague. Of course they did. They got sick. And so what's happening in China, again, is all these people were moved it, in, in China's sort of accelerated version of, of capitalism. Everyone had to move from the country and their farms. They moved to the cities where it's, d- it's d- disgusting conditions with pollution and and uh, and and these you know bacteria filled wet markets. And of course that doesn't work. Of course we get sick. And yeah, because on top of that, we have way way too much global travel happening now. You know the the, the I'll be very interested to see how much global travel picks up after this because um, except for the you know I can remember. A one or two trips in my life that were really meaningful. I mean, my God, it's sinful how much I travel just to try to make money to pay for my daughter's future college education. So yeah, yeah, it's part of it. What do you make of, in, in philosophical terms, of, of Trump's attempt to put a, a dollar and cent sign on human life, this quantification of, of life? Um, is it is it a disease itself? Some people are suggesting that. I mean, it is. It's not disease like his senility or something. You know, it's not a, a mental disease. It's a it's a social disease. And it's not, you know, you we can't blame Trump for it either. I mean, because as I grew up, I used to see, you know, the calculations that like Ford Motor Company made back when their Pintos were exploding. You know, how many deaths will they be sued for versus how much would it cost to add a you know, a, some new bumper to prevent the gas tanks from exploding. You know, we make these calculations. As Trump said, when he was saying we should send Americans back to work, yes, some will die, but that's a necessary cost of doing business. This is part of saving the American way. And the example he raised was, you know, we cars kill people. We have an automobile transportation system that kills tens of thousands of people. And we've made a calculation. That, you know, rather than spending more on our cars and our roads, we've come to accept this many deaths in in our automobile system. And that's, it's an economic 
calculation that we make. So he's being honest. He's being honest about the American way. When, when he says, <laughs> he said it, I got the quote here. He said, um, that doesn't mean we're going to tell everybody no more driving of cars, right? It, it, what we're doing is we're calculating the relative, relative cost of human life uh, uh, against the, the trade-off of making an automobile actually safe. You know, you can't do both. It can't be totally safe and totally profitable at the same time. You've been um, you've been having this conversation for years now. You and I have been talking about it for many years. You've been writing books. Your podcast, Team Human, is very popular. But it's never really broken out. Is there any evidence that in this crisis, the kind of conversation that you'd like Americans to have about the very nature of capitalism, is that... Um, is is that possible, likely? I think it is likely. You know, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago called Survival of the Richest about the billionaires who have these bunkers and how they want to leave us behind and uh, the discussion they had with me about um, how to maintain control of their security force after the apocalypse happens. And uh, it woke up a lot of people, I mean, that and and other things like it by other people, to, to this notion that there is a billionaire class who look at us as very expendable. And the conversation around the virus now is 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 a almost fascist worldview. The 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 thing that's coming to light is, you know, younger, stronger people feel like now they are being asked to uh, isolate themselves and quarantine themselves on behalf of weaker people, the old and the weak. Oh, think of the old, think of the weak. And that's a really tricky thing to do in America, you know, where we don't want to make decisions on behalf of the losers, right? This is supposed to be a country for the winners. That's what Ayn Rand was all about, right? The more we cater to the weak, the more we weaken ourselves and our society and our gene pool, right? That this is the virus is doing the natural selection and winnowing out the old and the weak. Uh, it, and and the people that are telling us to get back to work and to risk our lives, most of them, these are the super rich. These are the ones who have the private concierge doctors that are working all night to get some ventilators on the black market to treat, you know, the ultra wealthy when when uh, when they get sick or to, you know, they're already out in their bunkers in New Zealand in their hideaways, you know, waiting to see uh, uh, what happens to the rest of us. That's that's kind of, you know, that's kind of dark, you know, and I think people are waking up to that, you know, and they're also uh, waking up to this, this, you know, the, 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 this American uh, kind of ideal of positive thinking. I feel like a lot of what they're seeing in Trump and some of it I, I admire is it, it kind of goes back to Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. And, you know, Trump, went to that church when he was a kid. From the time he was six years old, he would go with his parents and they'd listen to the sermons of Norman Vincent Peale, who was really the mind over matter uh, preacher. He was the one that said, uh, uh, promoted the prosperity gospel and that we can kind of, uh, uh, you know, bootstrap ourselves, that you think and grow rich. And it's, it's, sort of looking at this virus from the perspective of the placebo effect. We just have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and mm. believe that we can overcome this thing, and we will. That's why he hates CNN and NBC reporting on all the dark stuff and sensationalizing the the horror of it, because he wants Americans to kind of wish their way through this thing. 
these big philosophical and political discussions obviously take place nationally and usually or ideally at the presidential level. Are the issues that you'd like to be discussed, um, is it possible that they will come up in the 2020 presidential election? Is Joe Biden up for the task of at least getting Americans to rethink the nature of their capitalist system? You know, he's not. And I was I was looking back at this and thinking, gosh, I wish Bernie this time out had decided not to run. But instead, as the kind of elder statesman, progressive, whatever of the party, he could have dubbed someone like Elizabeth Warren as, you know, the official candidate of the AOC left. And also, you know, someone who has enough uh, ability to speak to the to the moderates that, that you know, she could have won this thing. Uh, Maybe um, so. No, I don't see that. I don't see that happening quite um, because you know Biden is an old school Democrat who still believes in this kind of the power of these of these big institutions. He's not a localist. You know, even Bernie back when he was running against uh, Hillary, and I remember one radio interview in Portland. They asked him, "What's really the difference between you two? And he said, "Well, Hillary Clinton believes in the power of big government, and I believe in the power of local government." I don't know where that whole argument went this time out, but it was it was uh, it was a powerful one. And I do feel that even if it doesn't come out in the presidential election, I am hearing lots of people, a lot of my friends saying, wait a minute, what were all these guys in suits going on trains to go to work? What were they all doing? It's like we all understand, right? We need groceries. We need power. You know, we need shelter. We need doctors. Maybe we need teachers. But what were all those people doing? What value were they creating? What do we really need? You know, do I need H and M and Zara and you know all these all the stuff? You know, once we're worrying again about our lives and our values and our kids, all that stuff seems so silly. Even the net. You know, the cool, the whiz bang things on the net don't matter. It's the basic. It's see you, see me, which is now Zoom. You know, it's email. It's being able to talk to one another. Um, so I feel like in some ways, the things that matter to us are starting to to, to rise or, or come to the forefront. And we're beginning to question how much sort of hamster wheel activity we've been doing on behalf of the market, and not on behalf of humans. And the localism that you've been um, supporting and uh, theorizing about now is, 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 for better or worse, a reality for all of us. We're all stuck inside our homes for the next few weeks, uh, me in Berkeley, California, you in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, what are you doing, Doug? Well, I'm not in Brooklyn. I'm actually in a town called Hastings on Hudson. I couldn't afford Brooklyn. Oh, I thought you, I always struck me that you were a Brooklyn kind of guy. No, is that wrong? Am I being unfair? I think I would be a Brooklyn kind <laughs> of guy, but uh, no, I couldn't afford it. Uh, uh, and that sounds, I mean, it's funny because even a year ago to admit that seems somehow shameful, right? If I'm supposed to be an important writer, but I can't afford Brooklyn, is that in the American value system, it means, uh-oh, I guess he's not really a good writer then. He must, he must, something's wrong with him. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, no, now I can proudly admit. But it's because the kind of books I write, you know, I, I, I can't quite get into that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell 
area where you make tons of money on it. Uh, and then but, you can go and live in Brooklyn, right? If you're Mount right. But I'm living in, in Hastings on Hudson just fine. Thank you very much. You know what I mean? There's air and it's good. Um, but, but yeah, I feel like uh, we're not really local now. We're, we're locked up. You know, I can't really see my townmates. But what right. we do do every night at 529 p.m., we have something called the town scream. So everybody just screams from their windows or they bang their kitchen pots and things at 529. And you can hear everybody else in town doing it. So it does create some feeling of, of local cohesion. That's what I think we do want the most, though. Once people can really come out, they're going to want to meet their neighbors again. I do think there will be a, a renaissance of localism rather than a renaissance of globalism when this is done. I don't think people are saying, oh, oh, I miss Paris. I really want to fly so badly to Paris as soon as this is over. I don't yeah. think that's, that's not what they're thinking. Nothing against Paris, but you know what I mean. It's not, yeah. it's, it's, we long for our town square. I long for those moments at the farmer's market and the library and the train station meeting my, my people. You might not be Malcolm Gladwell, but you are a very successful writer. One book, uh, uh, one one book, Doug, that people should be reading in the crisis not 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 yours and not Camus' The Plague, but a book that people might not have thought about that would that would help them gain perspective on 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 the craziness that's happening in the world today. You know, the the book I keep going back to, and it looks hard, but it's actually really not. It's it's long, but it's nice. Is um a book by by Mumford called Technics and Civilization. Lewis Mumford, right? Yes, Lewis Mumford. And it's funny because, you know, people like me were always supposed to say, oh, McLuhan, McLuhan and Postman and all. And I reread this book by Mumford that I had to read in college and he got it all. He sees the red state, blue state thing way before anybody else, sort of the way city people and country people are going to divide and and. I feel like he understood what was going to happen to us almost better than anybody. And, um, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading that and, uh, another book, if you don't want to read something long, but that's short, but super smart, um, is a book called, um, the eclipse of reason by Horkheimer. And what he's doing is looking at the sort of the capital R big reasons we do things and how we've lost that we've lost the real reasons that that we've let utilitarian values you know the small r reasons to do things and being reasonable we've let that distract us from the big reasons we do stuff the big ethos and um i feel like that's going to come back this sort of sense of values what are our real values that are driving us forward and uh, it's it's I think it's going to, um, uh, uh, when people have time to sit and think about, wait a minute, what's all this for? Like that, the way this guy, Poe Bronson wrote a book right after the dot-com crash, like, what are we living for? Or what yeah, is my what life? The meaning of my life. Yeah. What's the meaning of my life? I feel like we're in sort of that moment, but, but, uh, for me, that's a philosophical reckoning. And both of those books, the eclipse of reason, which you can just download online as a PDF, which is written in the 1940s. Um, really asks the questions we need to be asking now. Well, Doug, as always, you do ask the big questions. Not only do you ask them, but you answer, or at least try and answer them. It's always a pleasure. Keep well. You um, too. On the East Coast. And I look forward to seeing you in person 
at least by the end of the year on the circuit, back oh, on the circuit. Well, thank you. You know, thank you for what you do. You know, and this is one thing that the internet kind of is fixing in some ways. Do you know what I mean? I feel like the, the they're they're in some ways they're following the advice of that book of your book, where it's like, no, wait a minute. The internet is at its best when it's like Google Docs. Let's just put up a Google Doc of all the hospitals. What do they need? Where could you leave it? You know, that's the internet can fix that, and uh, uh, it. it there's there's some hope. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.